The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code broken silicon for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off all other codes. Links in the description and I will say more later, but for now, let's get to the show. Okay, and welcome to Broken Silicon, a computer hardware and gaming podcast. Just right out of the gate, I'm going to announce sometimes we do interviews over the phone, so it should honestly sound perfectly fine and understandable, but understand that it doesn't sound like we're in a recording studio necessarily this episode. But I'm really excited about this guest for sure. Um, And I want to thank you for coming on, Mike. How about I'll let you introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, My name is Mike Prezzoni. And let me see here. So thank you for reaching out. I know you do analysis uh, and publications on Seeking Alpha. I have, in fact, used some of your info before. Specifically, yeah, when you mentioned it, I immediately remembered. I did a video talking about how cheap Intel offers their CPUs to OEMs and just how much more room they have in the do-it-yourself market to lower prices if they really got desperate. I mean, what you want to tell anyone about that publication you did there a little bit? Cause that was a pretty big video for, well, it was a decent sized video for me, I think in December. One of my areas of interest is economics. And I've been enlisted by the federal trade commission to uh, monitor the Intel docket nine, three, four, one consent order. Uh, that entails keeping track of Intel's costs what you were looking at was my assessment of what Xeon Skylake Scalable actually costs Intel to manufacture. Quick way to figure out what Intel costs is just to take price per 1,000 units, divide by two, which is a 50% long-run discount, and that's mm-hmm. essentially Intel's fabrication cost. So I don't remember costs. the specific price, but I remember, that, I mean, we're talking, you know, for the top i9s, easily below a hun- uh, few hundred. And I believe the i7s got, I actually don't remember. It was like below $100 for some of those i7s, right? We're talking the eight core eight thread ones. Yes. Uh, that specific slide that you showed on your show, it costs Intel about 12 bucks. And Intel uses easy tools. Intel likes easy tools. Intel is a volume producer. They want people to get it. So what Intel do is, did is they disseminated in 1996 and 1997 to the financial analyst community. If you are aware of what Intel's quarterly production was by uh, product line, by core grade, by grade skew, you knew what their 1K was. You could assume or estimate what their volume discount was. You could determine what the average weight price was, and then you could plug that into a total revenue, total cost model, and determine what their marginal cost of production is. And they uh, introduced that into the financial community in 96 or 97, because uh, the financial community at that time was aware of what Intel's quarterly production was into future time, between four and eight quarters into future time, and it remained that way for 20 years. 
and the financial analyst community utilizing this model could then determine what Intel's revenue and margin was four to eight quarters into future time using the total revenue, total cost model to play the stock price. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't understand when Intel's charging, well, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes to gamers like $2,000 for a 10 core a few years ago. I don't think a lot of people understand just how dirt cheap it is. I mean, this is like a commodity with the amount of volume Intel is supplying to people. These chips cost them almost nothing to make. And that's why AMD has to be very careful about getting into a price war with Intel, because that's something they just can't combat unless they're, I mean, (laughs) unless they're absolutely armed to the teeth. And I guess I actually do want to bring that up with you. I don't know. Have you seen how cheap some of their AMDs, I'm speaking, 12 nanometer chips are becoming? Because I think that's something Intel didn't maybe plan for, or maybe they did. But like the fact that 12 nanometer become so mature, their chips, even if they're not as good as their new Zen 2, still are aging incredibly well, that AMD can get their old, what used to be $350 eight core down to a hundred bucks. They can just use that to combat Intel's dirt cheap i3s. And so I guess, do you have anything to say about that? The fact that AMD seems to be gearing up to be almost ready for this price war using multiple suppliers? Certainly the 12 nanometer has been fully depreciated. Um, Intel's 14 nanometer line is very similar. It's fully depreciated. The variable cost of an Intel processor to manufacture the chips is about $35 per component, Mm -hmm. a very low cost at 14 nanometer. And what Intel's strategy has seems to be is they're going to always, when Intel, when AMD moves to the next process node, the leading edge uh, of the next process node and incurs greater costs. Intel will continue to compete on the legacy node, Mm -hmm. at the trailing edge of the legacy node for a cost advantage. Intel's production is about 400 million units a year. I mean, the analyst community will tell you the core lines, the mobiles, the desktops are about 250 to 300 million units. But when you add Xeon on top of it, it's about 400 million units a year. AMD is producing about 35 to 40 million units a year and might be moving to 50 million mm-hmm. units a year in 2020. So in, in, Intel has an incredible economies of scale advantage. That economy of scale advantage also is associated with board production. So the, the overall cost of producing an Intel processor and its boards is relatively low in relation to AMD's economies of scale. Mm, uh, especially for well, the boards, yeah. Especially for the boards. Also, people thought initially that that AMD components would cost less because they were being produced by a foundry, either by GoFlow or TSMC, and that AMD had a manufacturing cost advantage. Mm -hmm. They don't. Well, Uh, certainly not compared to Intel's insanely mature 14 nanometer. That's right. But when you get up into the Epic line, it is not an inexpensive component to produce. So if you look at the cascade, the scalable line versus Rome, scalable refresh components are costing Intel anywhere from about 55 bucks for the four core version, 135 to 165 for the uh, high core count dice, and maybe 178 to 200 for the extreme core count dice. 
That's uh, what I was told by someone else too, by the way, who has contacted until that that's about where it's at one to $200 for the more expensive ones. AMD is probably their, their, their cost for 64 core ROM is probably around 400 bucks. Mm-hmm. Which uh, it is twice as good as Intel's though. And that's where we're starting to see this, where in AMD is so ahead that they can almost compete in a price war, which is, what I was actually getting to with the 12 nanometer, though, you don't have those same packaging costs with their 12 nanometer uh, 2700X from last gen that they're continuing yes. to produce. So I, I imagine those are probably about, I mean, the same price to produce as Intel's 14 nanometer chips, don't you think, of about 30 to 50 bucks or something? I think that's in the range. So AMD's kind of armed for a price war almost, although I don't know that you want to trigger one with Intel. But but wouldn't you agree, though, that Intel can only lower their price so much? I mean, I don't think we're going to be seeing <laughs> the lowest I could see their highest court count chips sold to consumers. is like a thousand bucks. I really don't see them, at least not immediately going all the way down. Like, I don't see them selling. You know what I mean? I don't see them selling i3s for 30 bucks and i7s for 100 anytime soon. It doesn't behove Intel to do that. I mean. They don't necessarily and don't want to sacrifice margin. And they have a lot of research and development initiatives in their other divisions. Of, and of course, uh, uh, the client computing group and the data center computing group are paying for that. So they have no incentive to lower their margins. I personally believe one another reason why they don't have an incentive to lower their margins is if they allow AMD some breathing room financially, AMD's stock share price will go up. And Intel can ratchet their stock price up as well. <laughs> they can yeah. pogo off of each other. Because so far they definitely have. I think that's true. So let's take a step back then and uh, start from the beginning. I wanted to start that because that's kind of the conversation where we met. But so who? So why don't you like where? If you don't mind, like where are you from? Right. Like let's get to the interview of you. Well, I live in California. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I uh, attended San Jose State University and uh, had a degree, an undergraduate degree from San Jose State in uh, communications and marketing. And uh, of course, Silicon Valley in the early 80s, where do you go to work? You go to work for technology companies. And I went to work originally for technology advertising agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, the communications degree is from San Jose State's advertising department. They have an excellent advertising program there. And I went to work into the high-tech advertising business. What made uh, you want to do that, by the way? Like get into technology advertising and business analytics? Uh, the business analytics came later, although I always okay. did. I always, I, 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 my entry into uh, the advertising and the marketing world was based on my, on my ability to do research. Mm -hmm. So you read a lot, you dig up a lot of data. And uh, the advertising agencies would rely on that as a competitive advantage in securing accounts. Uh, why? Because that was the business that Silicon Valley catered in, right? Uh, the Valley of Hearts Delight had ended. You know, the, the big account was no longer uh, Del Monte or SunSuite Prunes. And you went to work mm -hmm. in the technology business. I was both a public relations guy and the AutoCAD segment manager at Arch. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, met people from Cyrex. So in 91, I was invited to go to work for Cyrex in Richardson, Texas. So I moved from the PC business to the processor business. 
Today, I kind of look at that as a mistake. I should have stayed in the PC business. Uh, the processor business is a rough, tough, um, it's a very, can be a very vicious business environment. Uh, but at Cyrex, participated in helping take Cyrex public in Richardson's, Texas. Mm -hmm. And a short while after that, I did the same thing then at NextGen. I moved back to California. So AMD acquired NextGen, not for the NX586, but for the NX686. That was already in development. And that became the K6. And I've been associated with projects like that. Uh, you're running at a million miles an hour and you're competing with Intel and you're getting the product 80% of the right, 80, 80% correct, 80% whole. You're getting it into the market and in the hands of more people so you can validate hardware compatibility and software compatibility and firmware performance. And you're, you're relying on the market as your beta validation lab. Um, what AMD needs to do is pull that ahead. Oh, right? oh, I know. Right now, it's ridiculous. Like, and that's something I've said is, you know, when I reviewed the RX fifty seven hundred, I didn't say anything about the drivers, but I didn't have any problems with the drivers. And I told everyone recently, hey, look, if I would have had any problems, bad review, any product you send me, if it doesn't work, I'm just not going to be afraid to say this sucks. And I actually did do that with one AMD. It was actually an AMD Intel laptop. And it had massive throttling and some software issues. And I just said zero out of 10 and I sent it back in the review. And I'm like, I'm not afraid to like, I'm not going to dance around and go, oh, well, you know, if they fix this, it's good. No, it does. It works or it doesn't. And you shouldn't buy this five, this problem. You, you want to make me review something, you send me a working product, anything, whether it's NVIDIA, whether it's AMD, whether it's Intel. Let, let me expand on that. Let me expand on what. I understand if you're provided a product that has supposedly been productized and commercialized and is available for sale in the market, and there are things it doesn't do right as a hardware review site, as a benchmark lab, as a user, word of mouth is very powerful. I think there is this worry with a lot of reviewers that if they admit they have a problem, people, frankly, will just say, well, you don't know what you're doing. And I think people just need to have you know the confidence to know uh, we do know what we're doing. I agree with that. And in, in that case, I would send somebody by from the CPU company. That's in the FAE or product. They sometimes center, do. Your doorstep and, and to see what's going on. If they can't replicate it in the lab back at the shop, in, in the programs that I manage, they would go to you and find out what was going on. And you know what? That's also a relationship builder. Maybe you have found something unique that couldn't be replicated in the lab. And that's awesome because you're doing this because you want to report on whether or not this is a viable product for the application at hand. At least you're going to say, okay, Intel, AMD came by. We identified there was an issue. They couldn't fix it. They're going to go back and work on it. Mm -hmm. But that's a positive review. That is not a negative review. Uh, you see people like Hardware and Box basically buying all of their own components pretty much from now on because they've gotten so big they can afford to. But a lot of the smaller players can't afford to do that. But I mean, I, I think a lot of these we- uh, review channels that have found like that have angered in uh, NVIDIA like Hardware and Boxed and they started buying their own components. I'm sure they've noticed recently our viewership hasn't fallen. 
Like people are willing to wait one week for a review if they know it's honest. And I just think a lot of the smaller channels, which I don't, I, 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 frankly, I stay away from reviews for the most part for these reasons. It's just, let's be honest. It's not cost effective for me either to do, spend all this time benchmarking by myself or to rely, be beholden on Intel or AMD or an NVIDIA to send me free parts. That's just, that's just such an unsustainable business model, if I want to be honest. And so that it's still a problem where I think you have the mid range or the mid sized channels who can't really get all of their parts on their own because they are expensive. If you have to buy them, but you, but now you do, you do have the big ones like Linus tech tips or hardware unboxed or gamers Nexus who are just willing to come out and say, this sucks. And it's starting to happen more and more often. So I at least think things are getting better in that regard. I appreciate your position from this as a view, as a member of your audience myself, I appreciate that you spend time reviewing on products you use. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. If I own it, I'll review it. Right. Just that, I that, that, that fits your applications requirements. It fits your utility requirement. And that you recommend to others, if this is what you're doing, this is really all you need. Mm -hmm. This is what I do. This is what I need. If this is what you're doing, you may or may not need more, but you don't necessarily need more. I I, I appreciate when you relay to your audience that for my uses, this is all I need, right? A 3950X for you is what you need and you don't, you might like something higher performance, but you don't need it today. And you feel you have enough stretch in your system. I don't need Threadripper now. For the, <laughs> don't need thread, thread ripper. Threadripper, by the way, is kicking ass in the in the workstation market. And I, I oh, take no. your background in engineering that that you're well aware of that in, in, in the workspace. Uh, they literally, I, by the way, I think Threadripper is also saturated that market. Um, it's uh, not even it's not even a discussion. No one's even considering Intel in that market that's anymore. Right. Any, anyone I know, you know, the Xeon W has no traction. Now back to the, the, your point about the commercial review sites, right? They have a they have a editorial schedule. They have a review schedule. They need to have product coming in so they mm-hmm. can continue to pursue uh, their their objective of putting out so many reviews in a specified period of time. And I appreciate that some sites are purchasing products so they can truly say that we are independent of the hardware companies that that could have provided us those products. And and at one point I've never made, I don't think that I would like to bring up too, though, is like if you're one of the smaller channels, which like me, or if you're someone who's above (laughs) a few hundred thousand to a million subscribers, you got enough money. You probably have a full staff and you can afford to buy this stuff on your own. But I think it's intimidating for some of the smaller channels that look through this paradigm of, oh, but I have to have reviews. Reviews are what get you whatever. And for some people, maybe they are a benchmarking and review channel and that's on you. But I mean, a lot of the analysis of the data that other people did is useful. And that's a lot of what I do. And if you do want to be a review site, though, what I would say is, Maybe you can't only be beholden to that because it's just, let's be honest, it's straight up not sustainable. I know we have these channels like Linus Tech Tips and Gamers Nexus that built themselves up on reviewing, but that's what made them successful 
then things change. And what I would say is there's so many smaller channels between 10 to 50,000 people who have subscribed to them that maybe it's better to just do more comprehensive coverage on a few products because people don't need you to review every product. People don't need me to review Threadripper and, you know, the 5700 XT, but maybe they'll go to another channel for those two products that they trust. And I reviewed the 3950X and the 5700 and the Radeon 7. And it's like, there's so many tech, what I'm saying is there's so many smaller tech tubers now that it's not necessary for any one channel to review everything when you've got a hundred channels to pull from. It's better you just all be honest and not beholden. Otherwise your channel will fizzle out. And I've seen this. There's several channels, I won't name them, that I followed where they turned into a review factory, but they never said anything bad. And their viewer count is like a tenth of me, even though they have 100,000 subscribers. And it's because there's nothing to, you're not really getting anything from their videos. It's important to be unique and differentiated. If you can't differentiate, if you become a me too side, what's the reason of, of, of doing it, right? You have to provide something that's uniquely special to the audience you're, 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 you're providing reports to. And I, I agree with you. Why do I want to go to four different sources for the review on the same product? I probably don't. I would always be fair. I would always try to put it in its best light without lying. But I also would just say, I'm not going to sign an NDA and I get to keep it if you send me it. But I will promise a review that's as fair as it can be. And if, if you're not okay trusting me to do that, then don't send me a component because I'm not going to agree to really anything. I, I would, whoever I provided products to uh, in this type of program where I'm giving you a populated board, your feedback, you're giving us, you're doing what you said you were going to do with it. I mean, I know what applications you run when I give you that board. I, I know what peripherals you're going to put on it. That's what I want to know. Mm-hmm. I want to know if this stuff's going to work and if this platform is stable. And by the way, if there's a gotcha, we're going to work with you to find out why there's a gotcha. Dermish writes in and he says, and I think we just touched on this a little bit in the past 10 minutes. Have we really reached a tipping point in the lack of trust in Intel, in your opinion, or do you still think they can spend their way out of it? With Windows 10 being in a terrible state and AMD supporting Linux much better by most accounts, I could see Windows reach a similar state as Intel Linux five to 10 years. What would it take for Linux? So I guess he's kind of asking two questions. Is, do you think Intel can still spend their way out of this? And do you think there's any room for Linux to break double digit market share in home computing? I'm a Windows user and I'm not currently following the Linux community. So I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, Linux runs the embedded, the industrially embedded space. The answer, the answer in 1997 was, Unix, was DEC Unix going to take over the Windows world? The answer is obviously no. I'm assuming you'll boot into Linux if it gives you a 50% boot. I mean, uh, performance boost. But the fact of the matter is, for the majority of the products, people are going to run Windows. And I think AMD understood that with Zen 2, because it actually works remarkably well in Windows, especially the 64 core, which when I saw the reviews and it was gaming almost as well as, <laughs> you know, other lower core count gaming processors, I was like, well, that just absolutely surprises me. And that tells you AMD fundamentally understands that they need to win the war in Windows to win any other war. 
Like, cause it just doesn't matter. People run windows. That's at least my answer. That's, that's the mass market, right? The mass market is the windows compatible PC market. And, and, and that's where the amount, that's where the volume is. That's where the 300 million units a year of X86 goes to. That's not Xeon. Uh, Xeon is a good, another it's Xeon is at least another hundred million units on top of that and more. I will say from, from the standpoint of, Intel itself, I, I, I'm the monitor in the Intel antitrust case for the Federal Trade Commission, and I also was just briefly associated with a monitor of the Microsoft case. Why don't we take a step back then before we answer the rest of this and go back to like, you you were involved. I kind of do want to go through some of that briefly, at least at a, a bird's eye view level, the antitrust work you did. Now did this, and I'm saying this right, Cyrix, is that how you say it? Cyrix. Yeah. So... Did you were you involved in that case? I believe no. you were. I was. Okay. I was. Uh, I was in the corporate communications department at Cyrix, and I was uh, doing. That's where I was originally doing some work in the association of PC user groups. But I was primarily the PR guy there, so mm-hmm. I was working with with the media, with benchmark labs, with channels. Now, and, what do you know about that though? If we talked about it for just two minutes, so people understand. Like, what did they steal from Cyrix? I'm sure you're well briefed on it, though. We eventually found in Intel Designs was the uh, floating point unit. So right. uh, Intel seemed to have helped themselves to the, the FPU that, according to my sources in Cyrix, was implemented transistor for transistor in the Pentium. Pentium they just P5, straight up copied P55, it into P55C. They just copied it, right? And it, this was in a period when Intel was borrowing a lot. So. <laughs> I, I wasn't engaged in the antitrust cases until 1998, but I was enlisted by the Federal Trade Commission based upon my observations inside Cyrex, ARM, NextGen, and AMD between 1991 and 1997. Intel was borrowing a lot of technology from other companies. All of a sudden, you would discover that your IP was being used by Intel. You know, the, the 10-pound gorilla, the 100-pound gorilla on the block. And you go and say, hey, uh, you know, that's ours. Mm-hmm. And Intel would say, oh, I don't know how we got it, but we'll license it. We'll just, we'll just, we'll offer you a license fee. And you either took it mm-hmm. or you didn't. But if you didn't, it was very expensive to go and litigate. With yeah, Intel, Intel would drag it out in court. property had been taken. And Intergraph in the MIPS market, in the MIPS workstation market in 1997, finally got tired of it and sued Intel in 1998. And they're saying, hey, you, you know, we knew they took our, the FPU at Cyrix. At NextGen, they were all, at, they were taking from NextGen as well. They were very, Intel was very concerned about the NX586 and the 686. And when AMD acquired NextGen, Intel's, Eyes, ears on the street were definitely inside of NextGen and AMD doing what they do, keeping their eyes open, keeping their ears open. And I knew that secure data was taken. At Cyrix, hard IP was taken. At AMD, secure data was, I know secure data was taken. At ARM, I knew secure data was taken. Yeah, we uh, talked about this before we started recording a little bit online via email. Honestly, I did some research back and forth, and my interpretation is people, and I'm just speaking generally here, seem to have like three or five big examples of Intel stealing data or in doing anti-competitive practices. 
But the way you talk about it, talked about it to me is it sounded like really, if we're being honest, from the 90s to the early, like late 80s to the early 2000s, Intel was probably stealing information from basically every computer company, like like wonton stealing back and forth. And we'll never be able to quite quantify how many things they stole in that time. Is that what you're, that, would you agree with that statement? That's what it sounded like to me. Uh, if you look at Intel as an associate political network of corporate relations in a supply chain, and if you look at Intel in terms of uh, what government regulatory and regulators viewed as a gross domestic product generator, it's highly likely that Intel from a manufacturing perspective was supported in theft that the intellectual property of others was driven into Intel to support their manufacturing operations, right? It was Intel versus Japan Inc. originally, right? In relation to what had happened in the DRAM business uh, in, in the early 70s. Right. I believe that there was a plan, especially in the 90s, that the intellectual properties of others was taken and driven into Intel to drive their manufacturing operations. Intel, Intel was chosen, was anointed, to be a very a, a successful design manufacturer of semiconductor components, and in this case, processors, and was designed to be a monopoly, was designed to be a monopoly organization in every, in every way, in terms of design capabilities and in terms of manufacturing capabilities. And if the design requirements dictated, when someone had something better than Intel and it fit, with their model, that it was related to an x86 processor, and Intel was aware of all the processor substitutes coming onto the market. And you're basically saying that it wasn't just like this culture of take what you can. You're saying it was a from the top down, hey, steal as much as you can. This is I our strategy. True. I believe that's true. I believe the government supported that, by the way. I believe the United States government supported that, given the lack of regulatory concern. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 25 years later, What's known is Intel is in violation of the 1993 antitrust compliance obligation agreement in that they falsely certified to the U.S. DOJ every year for 25 years that they were in compliance, mm -hmm. that they were not. So through the 1990s, you actually get Intel executives um, comments from them in relation to how they're complying with the compliance order when they're not. And it was could be proven in the 1990s and is definitively proven today. Um, the executive comments pretty much stop. The stuff that you could pick up from the public record stops in around 2000. Um, Intel Inside is listed in Intel's 10K as cooperative advertising. That's a false certification. Intel actually pulled that cost line item out of their annual report in 2018 and buried it into um, a general marketing general and administrative. And I believe Intel Inside is no more. I believe that one of the remedies of Docket 9341, which is the latest antitrust case, is that there is no more Intel Inside. And, and I don't know for sure yet, but I'm waiting for the next the 2019 annual report to see what Intel says about that. There's, you can read into what Intel says from their reports, whether Intel Insight still exists. And what Intel Insight actually is, it's not cooperative advertising. It's a way for Intel to register the flow of processors right. being sold through the channel. Intel essentially attaches a coupon to every processor that on average is good for 10 bucks, over 5 billion components. 
So about $50 billion of Intel inside fees have been uh, uh, provided over the last 25 years. And so Intel catches that $10 coupon to that processor. And when it gets to the, uh, uh, the, to the end sale at the retail outlet, at the media direct outlet, at the supplier direct outlet, they send that coupon to Intel and they get a $10 kickback. And while the case was focused on these cross-license guns, uh, I was I was discovering the component ties, and I was investigating Intel Inside as what was then called rebated fee by the FTC to start work on that. By the way, in 1996, I had informed the Federal Bureau of Investigation about my knowledge of the thefts. So obviously, there were pe- I knew people who were stealing, and they knew how, who who I was. And they were making it tough on me by that time. And it's Which was going to be my question, right? You like, I looked up uh, what is it? Discovery abuse. Intel's been charged with. Like, so what do you what are you talking about when you say they made it tough on you? Well, they want you. To, they want. <laughs> they make it tough on you. They once they know that you know who they are and that they're engaged in either anti-competitive behavior or theft, or industrial espionage, they'll try to recruit you. Mm-hmm. Join us. I mean, it wasn't vicious initially. It was join us. We'll make your life easier. How did they, I'm curious though. Like What's really, how did, how did they reach out? What do you mean join us? What did they do to like try to get you to quote unquote join them? And what did joining them actually mean? What they'll do is, uh, once you're aware that there's an associate network of individuals engaged in anti-competitive behavior and theft, what they'll do is they'll place you. They'll place you through their employment network into companies, and then they'll ask you to keep your eyes and your ears open and, and to steal. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I, re- I said, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm a marketing person. I believe in best practice. I'm not going to be beholden to your network. I'm not going to steal for you. I'm not going to have you grab me by the nads and then be able to flush me later, right? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have been retired years before had I just said yes. But the problem is, if you're stealing for them and they want to flush you, I, I mean, you're going to prison. So in my mind at the time, it wasn't worth it. And maybe initially I was naive, but how would they have paid you? not something I wanted to participate in. And what they'll do again is they'll they'll move you from company to company. You'll mm-hmm. see your uh, salary increase, and of course, in the 1990s, you would get better stock option incentives every time. And there are many people in the industry who benefited from this. An associate network of Intel relations. How would they increase your salary, though? You're saying they would try to get you into a company like next gen or something and then they would oversee somehow getting paid more how would they do that um they would move you one all these companies whether it was cyrex whether it was next gen whether it was amd whether Mm -hmm. it was samson there were intel relations there already Mm -hmm. intel had their associate networks buried into these companies. And AMD in particular, there were a lot of Intel associates buried into AMD in 1994, 95, and 96, and probably still are today, keeping their eyes all open for Intel. So what do they do is they refer you in through their uh, human resources and their recruiter networks and their executive networks who recommend you and she you into these places. 
and and you you see an increase in your salary and you see some rather rich stock option incentives and as you do intel's spy work for them uh, you know every two or three years as i observe them uh, they'll move you around in my case uh, since I wouldn't play ball with them, I was being moved, I was being flicked and moving around every eighteen months or so to another verse Intel competitive product introduction in the nineties. So that's how they do it. They do it through their associate H, their, their their human resources contacts, through the recruiter networks, through headhunters, and through executives they already have placed in these companies who approve you. Right? They're going to shoo you in so you can be the subordinate middleman or transfer bridge of what you see of secure data that you might come across, and then you would move it out of the company. Uh, In the business I was in, in marketing and public relations and communications, it was often moved out through public relations agencies. If there was a transfer bridge inside, the data then was transferred to the marketing, outside marketing consultant, or the outside public relations or advertising agency, and that's how it got to Intel. They're actually heads of ad agencies in Silicon Valley who who came from Fairchild. And they told me, Mike, this is how the game is played. They also told me not to mess with Intel Inside. Um, They saw Intel Inside as a, as an Intel Inside, there have been Intel Insides for years, Uh, these, these, these tied chargeback programs. They go back, a hundred years in antitrust law. And they're a great way for building a channel. It pays for building a channel ahead of production value, but they're incredibly illegal. And when Intel is attaching uh, Mm. that $10 coupon to processors that are 2X real-time demand, there's no room for anything else, right? Intel's producing processors that are 2X demand. How is AMD going to sell anything? How is Cyrus going to sell anything? How is IDT going to sell into a channel that's already buying twice as much Intel product as there is real-time demand? And they're buying it not only because the product is selling, but because there's a $10 spiff associated right. with every processor. As soon as you report that that processor was sold to Intel and they send you the check. Now, I see, all, you know, they, Intel's massive capacity to keep producing more CPUs and flood the channels really because of that coupon is basically a way to try to hide payoffs. Like they just send you an extra hundred, they send you an extra million CPUs to Dell, just not because Dell needs them, but because they know now they can somehow make it look legally like they're giving them right. $10 times a million, 10 million bucks extra. That's what you're saying. Well, Dell's doing it because they want that money. Channels compete right, right. for it, right? No one's going to leave it on the table. Let's look at the Dell example because Dell is, you know, Dell is the number one sales outlet for Intel processors and has been for 25 years. And they're essentially Intel sales department. So what Dell would traditionally do, and and and, and HP did it, although HP has always been very AMD friendly, mm-hmm. and and Compaq did it, and IBM did it, and they've all done it. And what they do is one. Dell has access and allocative privileges with Intel. They buy in such high volumes that they have access to the highest margin components in the volumes that they want. They have access to the highest volume uh, mid-tier components that they want. 
in the traditionally it was in the i5 line, although those i5 lines going away today because of AMD. But Dell can get what they want, and Dell has access and allocative privileges with Intel. And traditionally, there were seven to eleven Intel first tier dealers. They were called the Anointed Seven or the Anointed Eleven. Toshiba was in there, Panasonic, and what Dell would do is Dell would procure product. They would procure the highest volume they could so they could get the deepest discount. They would purchase more product than their real-time demand, more in excess of their real-time demand. And they would traditionally purchase twice as much product as they needed. And so what they do is they strip all those incentives and they pocket them. And that's how Intel would supply the secondary and tertiary market, by the way. Currently, I am in the process of breaking down my mining rigs. It's just not profitable anymore, and I want to use some of the spare parts, plus a few new ones, to build my first benchmarking station. Now, what most people might not be able to guess is that my mining rigs all used Windows, and ones with legitimate keys. But getting those legitimate keys was a hassle. I was forced to scour eBay and be discerning and making sure that the people selling those $10 Windows keys weren't a scam. And sometimes the keys didn't work and I had to fight for my money back. But you don't have to if you go to CDK Offers. Go to cdkoffers.com and use the promotional code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off an already cheap list price of Windows 10 Professional. Then all you do is click on your email account, go to user center and then my purchase orders to get the code just use this code with a normal download of windows 10 professional from microsoft's website all right links in the description so let me bring up this question here and this comes from someone i've had on broken silicon a couple of times he you know he makes selections for components in servers for a very large financial company and i just want to kind of read this and get your take because it's an interesting i think insight into uh you know the oem side of the market he says i would like to explain some of the rationale of why we chose intel over the competition and it has very little to do with anti-competitive practices by intel i certainly don't condone their practices but our enterprise software portfolio are limited to Intel due to software vendor support requirements. This is to save man hours and validation of software applications on multiple hardware vendor platforms and the risk to data that is associated with it. Validation is one of the most costly parts of IT for pure human labor, so everyone tries to avoid it as much as they can. Hence, we all generally go to an entrenched players and Intel stagnated but it enabled us in the enterprise world to have a predictable, stable hardware supply chain, which is incredibly important. And Intel's products for the longest time have been very stable and reliable, unlike, and he says this, other anti-competitive companies like Microsoft, where they became lazier and less stable when they were entrenched. AMD suffered from poor execution, in my opinion, of its product delivery process. This would wreak havoc on our schedules as IT infrastructure procurement are planned years in advance. And AMD's poor execution to Intel's rock-solid, stable execution track record. I mean, it's easily, I hope, he's saying, I hope it's easy to understand why he showed them. So at the end of the day, keep in mind that this very stagnation has created 
a lot of predictability, but it's also coming back to haunt all of us with the hardware security vulnerabilities like Meltdown and Spectre. And at this time, AMD is developing their own stable customer base and they are starting to execute like Intel. So he says, I want to thank you for coming to provide your insight and Tom for having this guest on. But I mean, so what do you say to that? Like, do you blame OEMs for doing this? And what are your thoughts? I mean, on all of that, because I think that is really a look inside the OEM point of view. Uh, first, if Intel had not monopolized the market, AMD would have the money to execute. Mm-hmm. If Intel had never monopolized the market, there would have been uh, competitive alternatives, would have been fund that would have the capital availability to execute well. Now, that's not what happened. In the Microsoft side, there were alternatives. There was Linux. There were other operating system alternatives besides Microsoft that were stable in a commercial environment. Pursuant to your 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 audience members' comment from an IT perspective, Intel's products meet their spec. Intel products work. Intel products are stable. Intel products are whole. Once you're in business and you're using Intel products, whether you're an OEM or an end user, your business is tied to performance of those products. I mean, you have a product market share, you have a financial market share, you have a customer base, you have a business to run. And you're not going to sacrifice any of those aspects, in this case, for a product which you perceive there is risk. Intel, even if they're providing product that is just good enough, which is all they're doing today, the product is just good enough and it keeps your business going. Nobody's going to sacrifice the day-to-day of their business utilizing a processor supplier whose products may not be whole for your application's requirement and can't be supplied in the volumes you require them. I mean, you can't sacrifice your business for that, so you're going to stick with Intel. It sounds like you blame the uh, more do-it-yourself and um, like things like laptop manufacturers and home use desktops much more than you do server and IT professionals. How so? Well, is, am I getting that right? You're, it, from what it sounds like, you completely understand why IT professionals would have chose Intel over and over despite all of this going on. But you're saying, I, what I thought I heard you say, and maybe you need to correct me, is that for a lot of people, there were AMD products that did work just as well. And when they played ball with Intel, they made it even worse on themselves. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? Or did I interpret that wrong? Uh, from a channel perspective, that's, that, that is true. If, if, you're procuring, if you're procuring from Intel and then decide to also procure from AMD, you lose access to certain Intel programs. You lose access to certain grade skew allocations. You may lose access, obviously you lose access to some Intel inside dollars. You lose access to um, uh, other Intel programs. You're taking a risk, but it, but that's a channel's view, right? That's the mm-hmm. channel's view. Again, in relation to the end buyer, you're not gonna sacrifice your business if it's running on Intel, it's uh, no one got fired for buying IBM, right? No one's going to get fired for buying Intel. And at Intel's low cost today and, 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 and pricing, they're very competitive. 
They're very Intel is very competitive selling product that just is just good enough. I'm estimating in the cloud market, for example, Intel's probably selling 28 core scalable processors for 400 bucks a piece, 85% off, 1K price. And these people need to keep their businesses running. AMD doesn't have enough volume to supply them. AMD has demonstration projects and validation projects in all of these cloud service providers and in these hyperscale operations. But it's the Intel product that keeps the business running day to day. And Intel doesn't want to lose that market either because they're a volume manufacturer. And when you're a volume manufacturer, you don't want to get stuck with any volume. You want to sell it. So even if Intel's selling into cloud at 85% off list, which is what they seem to be doing, mm-hmm. those cloud customers are going to take that product. They're going to take it at that price. They're going to burn through that product. And in 18 months, they're going to get rid of it, right? It's expendable. They want it at the lowest possible price. Intel's costs are incredibly low at 14 nanometers. And then in 18 months, they're going to get rid of it. They're going to burn through it and get rid of it. So and, how would you say AMD should compete with this, though? Because you're make, because I mean, AMD is winning contract after contract right now. Nowhere near, right, the market share of Intel, not even remotely comparable. But they are taking market share. So like, what would you say for advising AMD to combat this just flooding of the market and discount strategies Intel employs? I'll tell you first that AMD is not industrially competitive at $50 million a year. And 40 million units a year, 35 million units a year, that is not industrially competitive. Mm -hmm. No high volume shop is going to take the risk of commercializing around AMD at their supply volume because they don't have enough. You're still tied to Intel. Remember, all AMD channels are really Intel channels that AMD is just tapered into. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to compete? with? How is AMD? Let's look at how they're competing. And by the way, anyone can go to my uh, blog spot on Seeking Alpha and actually get very detailed market share information. It's all there. It's more detailed than you're going to get from any uh, any uh, top tier analyst because I'm, I have to do it for the government. I have to do it very precisely in terms of doing the work on the FTC case I work on today, which is docket 9341. So all the market share information is there on Seeking Alpha supporting do- the current antitrust case, which is docket 9341. Now to answer your question, how did AMD get, get gain market share? Obviously, they brought out higher core count processors than Intel, the A6 and the A core, when Intel was primarily a mainstream quad market. And of course, Intel's uh, extreme and uh, high-end desktop solutions were, you know, in relation to most people's budgets, priced high. I mean, the, the sweet spot, the sweet spot of the CPU market is was the i5 the i7, and then the price premium was associated with everything above i7. Mm -hmm. So what AMD is, they first said that there are some underserved markets, and that was the E5-1600 workstation market and the E3-1200 market. And so into AMD's first products, the uh, Threadripper 1900X, well, the, the Ryzen line was targeted at E3. And the Threadripper line was targeted at E5-1600. And the Threadripper de- decimated 
the, the Intel <laughs> Uniprocessor commercial yeah, space. Not even close. Just decimated it. It took it right. It took it fairly quickly. And in the E3 market, what, what AMD did is, and, they, and this is how AMD's always competed. They've always targeted trade and exchange of second to the, of the surplus market, of, of the hand-me-down market, of products that were already in use in the field or in the inventories of secondary market and sellers. And, and while Threadripper went up against the E5-1600 primary market, the Ryzen series initially went up against the secondary E3-1200 market, and AMD focused on if you were an E3-1200 user, or if you were sitting on E3-1200 inventory, we have something for you, Mr. It sounds like what you're saying is just kind of what AMD has been doing, and that's focusing in on underserved markets that Intel's overlooking, taking them, and then slowly ramping up how many of those you can take until you get, from what it sounds like, to an industrial level where you can really eat, somewhat attempt to compete with them overall. Is yeah, that right? right? Yeah, right. They're 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 looking to where there are underserved areas in the from a price performance standpoint. They're looking where there are secondary market uh, volumes of product that they know are going to be traded and exchanged out for something new, and uh, they're developing product to fit those needs. And they are, as you said, I think you said it very succinctly. Very succinctly, they're working their way up to where they can compete with Intel's primary production, what Intel's producing today. And obviously, they're doing that in the in the HEDD area. It's, it's all of Intel's H, higher desktop stuff is stalled, whether it's Xeon or whether it's Core. And uh, But I also believe that the Threadripper line is saturated. So where does AMD mm. compete next? They're competing. Uh, obviously, they, they're doing really well in the desktop. Uh, they're the and they have obsoleted the i3 and the Pentium lines, <laughs> yeah. and they've done that with product that's that's two years old. So 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 here you have the situation where and that actually AMD channels aren't necessarily happy about how fast AMD is displacing its prior generations. Right, mm. you've had Zen one, you've had you've had second generation of Zen one, the 2600 series, and they have the 3000 series and. Their life cycles are 14 months, 12 months, and Ryzen 3000 is about going to be about a 10-month life cycle. So they're cons- the cycles are consolidating. Well, and I think they're going to continue that. You know, I think they're going to continue to use, my guess, I've said in videos, is the 3800X as things mature. That will slowly, like, because right now, right, they have the 1600 still being sold and the 2700X. I think right above that, they're going to put the 38, well, the 3600 and 3800X. And then I think Zen 3 is going to roll in above those. And I think they're just going to keep using some of their older chips in the do-it-yourself while they keep supplying Epic, right? I think that's what they're going to keep doing. And because their architectures age well, they can. If you want to look at Zen, the first generation, that's like the Intel 80% rule. We got it 80% right. When it was an SOC with a non-unified memory architecture, and now they're using, moving to a unified memory architecture, mm-hmm. and and the products are getting better and better and better. Not that those four prior generations are bad values. They're not. They're excellent values for what they are today. If they're a secondary market sale, if they're a hand-me-down sale, if you're looking for, I wouldn't look at a new i3. I'd be looking at a... <laughs> 2700 X. Yeah, or 1600, right. A 2700 X. Excellent. So, so as AMD brings out these new products, what happens is 
there is some reselling, there is some trading, there is some exchanging, and it's forcing the prices of the oil products down. So they're concerned about it just as much as Intel. I have to say that AMD, I observed, has very good sales management, mm-hmm. has been pricing down, right? They're moving product out of the channels on price reductions. They're sensitive to the fact that they can't allow the channel to get stuck with mud product, older product. When newer product comes out, that creates loss. But I do have a question. So Steak and Chicken Man writes in and he says, what is the industry's or even your perspective on Intel right now? Differences in management versus BK, previous CEO, and the current one, Bob Swan. So, And, and, to, ta- and to have myself touch on this too, this is something where... I mean, what you describe is one hell of a web of stealing information from people in the you know 80s through early 2000s. But it's been 20 years kind of since that era. A lot of the people in charge aren't the same people. Do you believe personally that Intel's management and culture has changed? Because I met people at Intel. They don't seem it, to me. They feel like they've changed a bit in the past 10 years. There are a lot of nice people at Intel, by the way. I've met oh, yeah. Intel employees on the conference. And there always have been. <laughs> a lot of them really don't understand what's going on. And then it's and it's concealed from them. And a lot of them don't want to know. Um, so pursuing the question. Uh, Intel has a cartel, and Intel is still a quasi-cartel, lasted through Adelini. So in relation to whether I was a competitive marketing manager inside the industry or discovery aid on the antitrust cases, docket 9288, 1998 to 2000, docket 9341, 2007 to current, where I'm still the consent order monitor. My competitors, from an executive standpoint, were the legal departments of Intel in that period, and Andy Grove, Craig Barrett, and Paul Adelini. So I'm competing with their associate network uh, in terms of either... um, competing with Intel on the product standpoint and and cultivating constituencies of support, including for these beta validation projects that I was engaged in. And then on the antitrust cases, discovering Intel's antitrust violations and racketeering violations. The antitrust case, it's Russian dolls. The antitrust case conceals the espionage case, excuse me, conceals the racketeering case, conceals the espionage case. The racketeering was going on and the Security Exchange Commission violations were going on all the way up until the end of 2017. I liked BK. I liked BK. He brought change to the culture, although he, many people's minds, was not the most popular CEO. Mm-hmm. I liked him because he initiated change in the group think at Intel, uh, I believe. That's contrary to what a lot of people think about him. When BK came on board, the first thing he did in relation to the projects that I'm responsible for is there's something called the, this, this, in the Intel Supply Signal Cipher. The Intel Supply Signal Cipher, we touched on it briefly earlier, is a cipher that was used in the financial community to game Intel stock based upon insider future knowledge of uh, their production by category, percent of by category production, so you can figure out average weight price. So, and, and to play the stock price four to eight quarters into future time. So that Securities and Exchange Commission violation happened between 97 and 2017, and BK is the one 
that stopped that program. He's the one that changed it. The supply signal cipher was discontinued. It was discontinued after Bay Trail. So from the standpoint of the antitrust and the SEC violations occurring in Intel, the first one that went away was the supply signal cipher, and I'm pretty sure that Chris Anchek got rid of it. And because he got caught using it, I don't think he knew what it was. So I'm, of course, reporting on it to the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, the Security Exchange Commission. And under the discovery rules, Intel gets everything I write. Anything I write under the discovery rules for Docket 9341 goes to Intel. So that was the first, that was positive. I saw that as positive. It's only taken 20 years, but BK finally does something. So he stopped that. Now, the second thing that recently just You know, he did sell all of his stock like a month before the uh, security vulnerabilities came out. uh, That was well reported in the press. My opinion is he also knows what their uh, uh, financial exposure is to the settlement of the Intel of the antitrust case and uh, the recovery of the Intel Insight price fix by end buyers. What I want to ask then is, is it sounds like you're saying that they were getting steadily more, less bad over time, even under a CEO, many people now don't regard very well. And you think Intel's becoming less shady over time? I, I do. I think they began to prove, uh, with, I think the, the anti-competitive and racketeering and espionage activities, including incredible theft from D- data center group, there was... Over the last six years, there's been quite a theft of Xeon processors laundered at prices below cost. Stopped at BK. It was pervasive through the Barrett and Adelini administrations. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Intel has been slowly remedying, remedying these problems. Um, you don't have much to say about the newest CEO, though, yet. Uh, you know, I, I read everything the guy writes. I review all of the presentations he provides input to it through um swan i i don't my big issue with intel right now is the legal department and um i believe that that company wants to be competitive i believe that swan wants to do it right and it's still Mm -hmm. an organization that has a high levels of corporate responsibility and best practice and intel says that they do and says they've always have (laughs) <laughs> but it really only started happening here in the last couple of years. And I think Intel is being pressed to clean up its act, waiting for the final uh, decision from the EU Court of Justice on their EU appeal. And there are also aspects of the antitrust case here that are, are, are being addressed, where remedies are being suggested. And I think where Intel is going to solution. And I think. The biggest obstacle in way of the remedies is the legal department saying, my God, those the 25 consecutive false certifications that we were abiding by the compliance order in the last 25 years, we must have made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake. There's there's face savings here. There's mm. egg on the face, right? Yeah. As a monopoly, back in the 90s and even through the 2000s, because of the lack of regulation, international organized crime all over the world saw that. It's like a flash sure. billboard in Silicon Valley saying, we've got an unregulated monopoly. And from an international standpoint, others see that. 
And they invaded the organization, the channel, it's mm. channels to get their fair share of it, right? They wanted their cut. And so, so you think they're getting better. Yes. But but at the same time, you do think a lot of it was just the lack of scrutiny, which, right? Is that what you're saying? I think everybody turned the other way. And I think that Intel was invaded by organized crime who wanted their cut of the monopoly profits. Intel convinced the United States and other governments that they were a contributor to gross domestic product. So the question is, how big is the check that Intel's going to write? Uh, over twenty over twenty five years, the total uh, the total tally for Intel Inside is uh, forty one point five billion dollars, about ten dollars a piece across forty four point one billion processors, and I, I think Intel's actually produced about five billion now. So, and you don't think Intel can stall it out in the courts forever because they have done a good job of stalling it for just ridiculous amounts of time. They have, and I think the EU is going to have a decision. And right now we're waiting. Why, why the EU decision has been stalled is because they're harmonizing with the United States. The EU does not want to be in a position where there's a conflict when they say that, yes, Intel Inside is indeed a consumer cost, an avoidable consumer cost charge. That's what they're describing it, avoidable consumer cost. In this country, it's called a nonsense cost. It's also called an extra economic cost, or and it's called a price fix. And um, so what? happening now is there's harmonizing between the EU and the U.S. So there's no diplomatic conflict when the court of justice final appeal decision is made public. And so at that point in time, what will be the Intel inside recoverable for consumers that were overcharged? So you can look at it in three ways. You can look at it at, okay, Intel's going to have to write a check for $41.5 billion dollars on the predicate act of, of of this charge happening every day for 25 years and lying about it, right? They lied about the fact that this was an anti-competitive act. They concealed it. That's uh, probably not going to happen because nobody wants to bankrupt Intel. But mm. Intel, but and and of course we're talking about how the, well, and you could argue it's a national security problem. Well, there's a do. lot of issues with it. It was a big. This, this is a, this. It is, I don't like to use the F word. It's a corporate political fuck up. I don't like to use that word. It was a corporate political fuck up to allow Intel to monopolize the market and to disable commerce, interstate commerce, internation commerce, to disrupt competition, to disrupt innovation. And that was just a big, big mistake. And immediately there needs, there is law, there are laws on the books, but there could also be legislation and, and augments to legislation to prevent something like Intel from ever happening again in terms of what Intel Inside did to support Intel's monopolization of channels and destruction of competition and the disablement of commerce. So the lower values on the Intel Inside recoverable is about uh, the four-year civil RICO recovery is that's how much Intel Inside was paid in the last four years. It's about $6.8 billion. And if you went back to criminal RICO, which is 10 years back, it's about $18 billion. So my belief is Intel doesn't want to be charged with criminal racketeering. And they don't want to pay $18 billion in Intel Inside Recoveries, which would be put into a fund and then disseminated to the people who applied for them, either on their purchase invoice, on their property tag, or on their Windows license as proof of purchase. Uh, that's how it would be recovered by consumers. 
and it would be recovered probably through states, the state's departments of consumer protection. So that's that. That's the issue right now. Intel is cleaning up. They are no longer a cartel sales triad, which is what okay. they were in cahoots with channels in the media at one time, the big hard copy publishing outfits. And the, you say, because this is another reader mail here from QH Freddy, he says, from the legal perspective, it was mostly the government's not scrutinizing them enough, wouldn't you say? I mean, is there, concern, is there more concern now shown by governments, you think, towards the nature of x86 competition? And do you think it was something they were just ignoring before? I think you pretty much answered that. They were turning a blind eye to it because they thought Intel was making money when, in fact, Intel was concealing massive thefts. People were willing to to allow the anti-competitive, the channel violations especially. The government turned a blind eye and people were willing to overlook pursuant to Intel Inside. Intel Inside actually disabled interstate commerce. That's one that's not going to be overlooked. Well, what AMD did in 2005 was AMD convinced the OEMs that that was a cost and they should join with AMD in the EU antitrust case, in the EU complaining to the EU uh, Competition Commission. And again, the EU discovered from the PC OEMs that pursuant to Intel Inside, the cost of Intel Inside, the administrative cost of running a metered registering program were paid by the consumer. The cost charge was placed with the consumer, that it was an avoidable consumer cost charge. So, the EU doesn't seem to be putting up with nearly as much anymore with, in terms of many different companies, not just Intel. Like, I really don't see companies getting, I know everyone acts like companies can get away with anything, but it's like, no, I just think we notice it more now. The, the amount of things, I mean, if you really want to go back, go back to the 1800s. I mean, it was a free for all in terms of what corporations could get away with. And I just don't see Intel getting away with these shenanigans to any degree that they used to be able to anymore. I would, well, you look back in the 1880s, the Federal Trade Commission came about about 1888. So they started policing it through, including through the, uh, you know, through the 1920s, did a very good job policing cartels. Uh, today, EU leads in uh, uh, global mm-hmm. antitrust enforcement. They lead um, from the standpoint of, of addressing uh, leaks in the economic system caused by cartelization. Uh, a final reader mail here that I just want to get your quick opinion on. So John DeLuca, Marcus Smith, Steak and Chicken Man, basically all write in the same sort of thing. And do you see ARM and Risk Five posing a real threat to x86 and especially to Intel moving forward in the short term or even the medium term? Not Risk Five. Risk Five is in the embedded world. I just don't see a threat coming out of Risk Five today. If you look at ARM, they created new spaces. They created the 32 core product category and subsequently created a new space where they could compete with Intel. And you're seeing ARM make inroads there in a, in a, in a Linux environment that is that's containerized. Your virtual machines are containerized. They're certainly a contender in the custom space, in the niche space, and so is AMD, right? They're going after uh, high-performance computing. They're going after supercomputer sales and their supercomputer developments. And they're making, they're establishing some niches for themselves there. And when I was at Hot Chips last year in August, I mean, everyone was talking about RISC-V, so I report on it, because I think it, I think theoretically it sounds great, and literally everyone to a man or woman said, this is the future. But 
You know, I, I, I agree. You know, so after seeing Arm and Arm has a whole product. Arm's, I mean, Arm has been developing its ecosystem since 1989, and as a licensing company since 1992, they have a very whole product in all the spaces they compete. So you don't think it's a threat, though? As the Arm rides Intel. I don't think it's a threat from the standpoint of the processor market. Not today. Um, you know, people are speculating that you'll eventually see ARM and Apple. Apple's changed operating systems once. They know how to do that. For ARM, it's easier to complement than to compete, even for a Risk v It's easier to complement than to compete with Intel. You can ride Intel. There's plenty of volume riding Intel. Intel is a design manufacturer. They design it. And they manufacture it. They consume others' intellectual property. They will collaborate if they see advantage in doing so. And you have an ability to ride Intel platforms and Intel platforms. But I, but I don't see uh, RISC-V. RISC-V has a lot of whole product work to do, even for the embedded industrial world. And Intel's cost structure is made for what it does. Um, um, owning the PC market from a volume perspective and owning the commercial market from a volume perspective. And to the extent that AMD can get in with superior products and produce them in volume, they will continue to take market share. Yeah, maybe we'll do it again though, especially around other other like um, financial analyst days too. would be another good time to have a discussion, I think. Well, thank you very much for the time. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And anytime you want to ping me, re- you want to just email me questions and I can provide you that content as a service of your audience. I'd be happy to do at least a chat. Oh, for sure. I will do that. And I mean, why don't you tell everyone again here um, where they can find you? Okay. Mike Brazoni, Camp Marketing, and I blog on Seeking Alpha. So you can just do a Google search, Mike Brazoni, B as a boy, R-U-Z-Z-O-N-E, and it'll pop right up. And, a, and hey, just send me links to your pages, right? And I'll put that in the description along with any other information you want people to easily look up while they're listening to this. Hey, thanks a lot. I'll do that. All right. Yeah, you have a good afternoon. You too. All right. Bye. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. 
The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover State's podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Bootman, Carbon Cry, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yunt, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim, Bollocks, Jordan Betcher, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, Prime Tech TV, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Carl Marco, Phil S., Thyrister the Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, John Bible, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Diesel, Derek Evans, Matthew McMullen, Christoph Novak, Neil X01, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, Scott Show. Sadler Sadler, Richter Cohagen, El Etheros, Telos, Caden Picknell, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, Exoti, Whiny Care Bear, Matthew Lane, Paul Jones, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Michael Costa, Ali Robertson, Gordon Lamb, Jonathan, Drita Full, Evan Dingle, Nick Neasy, Dominic Dewar, Carol P. Burrow, Wayne, Sam MacArthur, James Crosta, Hector Santana, and Brad Medlin. And of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. Music.